Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Bhumika, the host for our interview today. And today we are going to be speaking with Professor Adeline M. Masquillier, who is a professor of anthropology at Tulane University. Adeline has done extensive ethnographic research and writing in Niger on various subjects on matters of religious conduct and identity, practices on marriage, love and romance, on healing, and one of my favorites on social memory and road mythographies. Today, we will be speaking to Adeline about her new book, her latest, Fada, Boredom and Belonging in Niger, which was published this year in 2019 by the University of Chicago Press, um, Adeline, welcome to the show. We're so happy and excited to have you. And I was wondering if we could begin this interview by you telling us a little bit about your own journey in anthropology, about the, you know, your arrival to anthropology and the various choices that you've made through your career in matters of research, uh, methodologies, and the way you've gone about it so far. Gladly. Um, so I, I came to anthropology a bit circuitously. Um, I was born and raised in France, um, and upon graduating from high school, decided I wanted to spend uh, a gap year in the U.S. to learn English properly. Um, and so I made my way to um, North Carolina and spend a year there. Uh, luckily, I, 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 so I applied to university, and um, when, uh, when I was uh, admitted to um, UNC Chapel Hill, um, I ended up placing as a junior, which um, I thought at the time would be a great advantage. And I con- eventually I convinced my parents to let me stay an extra year so I could graduate with a bachelor's. Um, but that left me very little time to think about what I wanted to major in. And of course, the question of major, the question of how one goes about uh, making decisions and structuring one's life as a college student, all of that was very foreign to me. Um, and I, I, you know, I was a, a, a 17, 18 year old uh, who barely spoke English. Um, in any event, I ended up um, majoring, oddly enough, in, uh, in zoology. It, 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 somebody decided for me, actually, and I never changed the major, but I was really doing biology. I wanted to be uh, a doctor at the time. Uh, I thought I wanted to do medical research. So I spent two years taking a lot of biology and, and, you know, courses having to do with genetics, cell biology, and so on and so forth. Um, but of course, I also had to take um, a few um, other courses to satisfy other requirements. So I took an anthropology course. 
uh, and I really liked it. So I took another and then another. Um, eventually, I graduated, as I said, after two years, a bit rushed. Um, but having learned English properly, as well as a little bit of science, of course, um, went back home, um, really didn't know what I wanted to do, attended university in France, spent a year in Spain, taking more anthropology courses, and then eventually decided, well, I don't want to do medicine. I want to I want to do anthropology. So I came back to the U.S., um, ended up uh, doing a, an MA uh, in, in Illinois, and, and then uh, went on to the University of Chicago to uh, start my Ph.D. Um, and, um, yeah, so that, that was, you know, a, a bunch of – I mean, I really – I, I, I feel like I didn't – decide some of that it was just sort of circumstances um and uh, at the university of chicago i met uh jean Komaroff, um and uh i was i wanted to work with her so i decided i had to work in africa um and uh niger i had been there as a child as a teenager with my parents on a short touristy trip. Um, and I thought it would be great to go back. I had really had a wonderful experience there for 10 days. Um, and so I decided this is where I want to, you know, do my field work. Um, and of course I was interested in religion, ritual, um, and I still wanted to, uh, somehow, uh, connect to my interest in medicine and healing. So I decided spirit possession would be a good topic, a good issue to research. It would it would sort of bring together my interest in religion and my interest in medicine. Um, and Hausa was uh, a language that you could learn uh, at Northwestern University, which was, of course, right around the corner from the University of Chicago. Um, so I decided to uh, work in the Hausa-speaking region of Niger. Hausa is a lingua franca, which means that you can uh, really um, conduct fieldwork in a variety of places. Um, it affords you great um, mobility, great freedom uh, when it comes to choosing um, a field site. Uh, so that's how I came to um, the little, uh, the, 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 the small, uh, provincial town of Dogonducci, um, mm. a few, a few kilometers from the, the Nigerian border. Um, and so that's where I ended up, uh, you know, conducted, conducting field work, um, for my doctoral dissertation, uh, on spirit possession. And I returned there, um, many times over the past, uh, 31 years, um, and uh, ended up picking up on, along the way other interests. Um, I was, of course, interested in, well, of course, I, I, I picked up an interest in gender, was, uh, wanted to work with women, um, decided uh, the, 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 the resurgence of a certain kind of Islamic um, piety um, was quite interesting and I wanted to um, 
look at women's investment in um, the Islamic revival movement. So my second book uh, focuses on that issue. Um, and youth, which is, of course, the topic of the current book we're discussing, um, wasn't originally something I wanted to explore, uh, but at the same time, um, Niger happens to be, uh, amongst other things, uh, the poorest country on the planet, or so the um, United Nations um, Index, Human Index Development tells us it's regularly ranked at the very bottom of the Human Index Development Scale. Uh, and uh, it also has the highest fertility rates, and it is the youngest country on the planet. Um, something like 75% of the population is under 25 um, so you have lots and lots of children, lots of youth everywhere. Um, it's something that always strikes um, tourists and foreigners when they arrive. The number of children, the number of youth that um, that you encounter as you walk in the street, as you sit in public spaces. Um, so uh, at the time when I was thinking about a new project, I I thought it might be interesting to look at the situation of youth um, and especially in, in the current economic uh, context where many of them, young men in particular, um, cannot find jobs because um, mm-hmm. there simply isn't um, a market for the cohorts of young men who are emerging um, every year out of high school and university. Uh, so those who have edu- who are educated, who actually uh, have um, invested in education, thinking they're going to get a job, uh, are very disappointed. Meanwhile, those who have not um, attended school also have to, stru- have to struggle in the informal economy. So all of this was very visible to me. And I ended up you know, sitting at uh, with them in the street, they were all drinking tea, chatting with one another. Um, and so in, initially, I was just looking at um, youth as a potential problem to investigate, but I wasn't actually sure what my specific, you know, issue with them would be, what exactly I wanted to write a book about. Um I was initially drawn to their interests and, and, and engagement with Islam, uh, since Islam and Muslim practices had been the topic of my, of my, um, my second book. I thought this was a, a, a sort of logical extension of that, that project. Um, and then the, the more I, um, the more I learned about the fada, those, those tea circles, those, those informal conversation groups um, that young men uh, have created, the more I realized this wasn't just the setting of the book. This was also perhaps mm-hmm. the, the, the subject. 
mm-hmm. of the research. And so that's how I came to um, to write a book about uh, those those particular um, mm-hmm. practices of sociability. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, this provides me the perfect opportunity to ask you the sort of the other question I had in mind about the book itself, about Fada. And I wanted you to tell our listeners about uh, the space of the Fada itself, which is pretty much, you know, the substance, the premise, the methodology of the book. It runs through the book like a lived experience. And so if you could tell us about the the term itself, what it means, its history in sort of the urban public spaces that you are situating it in. And what is it about the possibilities of the Fada itself um, that excited you or sort of drew you to a book-length project about something which may otherwise seem um, as quite ordinary as sort of, you know, drinking tea, being bored, and socializing with men of your age? Uh, So if you could tell listeners a little bit about the Fada itself as a category and as a unit of both lived experience and space as well. Yes. So Fada is the Hausa term for um, the elders, council, uh, the chief's uh, uh, court, uh, the emir's court. So it is the seat of government. The, the, the traditional uh, seat of government at the village level, at the town level, um, as well as um, in the more, uh, the, the, the more expensive districts that are run by or that are headed by emirs or chiefs or kings. Um, and so it's, of course, uh, essentially a male space, right? Um, mm-hmm. it is, the, the council is made up of um, male elders. Um, women would only be entering that space um, if they had uh, some request uh, to, to, to make. Uh, or if they had a grievance to lodge against a neighbor or a family member uh, and wanted to be heard in court. Um, so at the, if we, we want to sort of go back a few years to the early 1990s, at the time when uh, the, the, the economic reforms that were mandated by external uh, donors, the World Bank, the uh, the IMF, uh, and and other partners, international partners, funding Niger, uh, all those those different parties um, requested that Niger, in order to renew uh, loans and be be afforded financial assistance. Niger had to um, had to uh, uh, make some very drastic changes, cut social services, um, and and basically retract the public uh, space, the public uh, sphere, public services. And um, what that meant was that uh, education, healthcare, um, and other uh, 
publicly funded uh, uh, administration, administrative services were, were seriously uh, reduced and unemployment uh, really just everyone, no one could find, you know, the, the young men could not find jobs anymore. There was really a, an explosion of, of unemployed uh, young men around. Um, as well, because uh, one of the the issues was the the defunding of the university and the school system. Students, both at the high school and at the university level, um, went on strike, and they were all sitting in the street. Students, especially in Niamey, the capital of uh, Niger were sitting in the street uh, with very little to do. They took to drinking tea, uh, which was not a typical occupation of, um, of any young people. Uh, tea was thought to be something that um, Tuareg-speaking, uh, uh, Tamashek-speaking people, Tuareg um, people uh, engaged in. Um, civil servants as well, uh, occasionally drunk tea uh, in the afternoon during a break or after um, after work, but it wasn't something that was very widespread, certainly. Uh, and so uh, there was this this new form of sociality that just emerged, all these young mm-hmm. people sitting in the streets with little to do. They had no place to go. Um, they didn't want to sit in the a family compound, which is typically thought of as a more female-oriented space. Um, they did not participate in uh, uh, their elders' uh, occupations or were not part of those social spaces either. Um, so informally, those conversation groups started coalescing. Um, and, of course, there was a political dimension uh, to these spaces because young uh, young people, the student uh, movement, especially the student association, was directly implicated in uh, uh, the, the general strike that uh, ended up uh, happening in uh, in 1990. Uh, and eventually, uh, all of this resulted in a national conference that completely uh, uh, revised uh, the the. The whole, um, the whole way that government was imagined for Niger. I mean, basically, it was the path to democracy. This really opened uh, a democratic space, um, and uh, elections were held for the first time. Democratically held elections, um, and uh, Nigerians went to vote for their for for the for deputies in the assembly, uh, for a president. I mean, suddenly they had, everyone had um, uh, uh, a voice in in the choice of government they wanted to, to have. So this was a very exciting time. And so young people, despite being economically disenfranchised, um, were very much part- participated in this, in this process. Um, the other side to the FADA, to the, those informal conversation groups was that um, because Niger was opening up to the rest of the world, um, 
through uh, radio, through um, through television, through uh, finally a free press where you know newspapers uh, could be um, produced that didn't have to just parrot uh, what the the government, uh, which at the time, of course, was a was a was not a democratically elected government. Um, all these sort of opening up um, to the world um, enabled young people to also participate through uh, engagement with social media. Uh, so the Fada coalesced around uh, private radios that emerged uh, in various towns in Niger. So the Fada as a, as a youth project was very much an urban project. Uh, this mm-hmm. happened in Niamey, in Dogonduchi, in Maradi, uh, in, in, in a variety of, of towns, but it was very much an urban project. Um, mm-hmm. y- young people, young men could uh, become members, they could buy uh, cards so that they could participate in radio shows where they would have conversations with the radio host who would read their names and they would be able to greet each other. So it was a, a way to create visibility for young mm-hmm. people, uh, mm-hmm. to hear your name spoken on the radio, to hear the radio host you know, speak your name and greet the fada and enter in conversation with different young people who could voice their opinions about a variety of topics this was extraordinary. This was unprecedented. This gave them a kind of um, uh, a, a place to 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 inhabit, right? Uh, which they did not previously have in a society that's uh, very hierarchically or structured, where youth don't have much power, don't have much voice, um, mm-hmm. and uh, so th- this was also the, the the emergence of those. Uh, private radios was very important uh, mm-hmm. to the to the creation of of the fada. Each fada, which was typically composed of any anywhere between uh, six to twenty or twenty five or thirty youth, um, each of them had a boombox. This was the primary, um, if you want. Form of infrastructure of the fada. You could sit anywhere against a wall. All you needed was a bunch of mats or a be- or a bench, perhaps a few chairs. Um, but the, the the important investment was the boombox, so that you could play music, you could listen to your favorite radio shows, uh, and you could hear your name be spoken um, by you know by a radio host and know that. Other youth would hear it, and that that created a sort of community of youth who spoke um, to each other, um, uh, you know, through the through the, the 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 medium of the of the radio, um, mm-hmm. and and of course some of those radio shows, as I said, were specifically tailored to um, young audiences. They spoke about love, unemployment how to dress. Um, a lot of young men became uh, enamored of hip hop. Um, so the, the radio was essential to, um, to the, 
the, the, the emergence and the consolidation of the, the Fada as a, as a kind of um, social infrastructure. Um, eventually, Great. if you, uh, you know, by, by, the, by the, 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 the millennium, at the, at the turn of the millennium, if you were a, a, a young man, uh, age 14, 15, 17, 20, and you didn't belong to a fada, you were really an outsider. Hmm. Hmm. Thanks, Adeline. Uh, you know, it's very interesting that you talked about the kinds of uh, perhaps new socialities that the fada is generating at these sites. And, you know, in your third chapter, I chapter on the gender relations of the fada, the kinds of experiences that it generates for differently gendered groups and identities. I was very struck by um, a reference that you make to the new ways in which love and romance is being uh, perhaps imagined. You know, you say that this is uh, money is the new currency for love and that people are now marrying for love. And it's interesting to notice how mostly heterosexual love is being imagined in these sites of intense homosociality. So I was wondering if you could offer our listeners some comments on what do you, what did you see and what did you notice uh, in terms of these radio broadcasts, in terms of these new ideas about music and romance and love that may or may not have new possibilities for imagining, um, you know, restructuring of kinship or marriage, or are they in some sense reproducing uh, the kinds of patriarchal or masculinist hierarchies or are they producing new kinds of masculinities? Is there a romantic man to displace a domestic man? So if you could tell us a little more about the kinds of um, possibilities that something like marrying for love or, um, you know, in a cash economy, the possibilities of romance and love provide for these young men and women engaging at the father. Yes. So, uh, Niger and Hausa society and, and other, other in, in any, well, in many of the um, various um, regions of Niger, um, perhaps it, it's not totally, totally uh, evenly the same um, across the country. Uh, Tuareg people have sometimes distinct um, ways of apprehending um, marriage and gendered division of labor. Um, Tuareg people were um, traditionally pastoralists um, and uh, women have a, a, a different role to play. So I, I'm, I'm not excluding them, of course, because mm -hmm. many of them have been urbanized and um, uh, most of them don't have uh, don't don't have um, don't engage in pastoralist um, practices anymore. The cattle has died. Uh, you know the, the environmental conditions and and, and the war. Uh, the, the the two sort of uh, moments of civil strife um, that occurred um, in the mid nineteen nineties and and early on. Um, in 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 the millennium, have made it very difficult for some pastoralist groups to keep engaging in 
um, you know, raising, uh, raising sheep, uh, uh, cattle, uh, camels and so on. But, but in any event, so, uh, it's true that, um, romantic love has become, uh, a, a, a new, uh, mode of imagining, domesticity, marriage, um, initiating a family. Um, traditionally, marriages were arranged. Um, that's, of course, not specific to Niger. Um, but the idea, of course, was that um, the 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 stuff of, of, of marriage uh, and the idea of two people uh, uh, bringing two families together uh, through marriage was such an important matter that it couldn't be left to um, two young people. Uh, elders had to participate in the process. Um, and... Uh, Gender segregation is very much part of people's lives still today, uh, which means that uh, women, wives, wouldn't have uh, to spend much time with their husbands who um, were mostly outside the, the home, um, while, whereas women were typically um, spending much of their time in, in their homes. Um, some of them would be, in fact, um, uh, secluded. Uh, this had much to do with um, with Islamic, a degree of, of religious commitment, right? If you wanted to demonstrate you were uh, a, a profoundly pious man, you would seclude your wife or wives. Um, that uh, meant that you had also... A, a certain amount of uh, wealth because you had to employ uh, domestic servants to carry out the work that women wouldn't do because they couldn't leave the home. Um, this is still happening in certain uh, either elite Muslim families or pious uh, families uh, where men want to demonstrate their, their faith by secluding their wives uh, the the opening up of of Niger to uh, a variety of cultural external cultural influences um, with the with the, the 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 political transition to democracy also brought to Niger new modes of imagining um, marriage uh, and one prevalent. Um, medium was the telenovela. Uh, I started noticing that um, families, young people, but also parents, uh, youth, uh, elders, everyone was watching, uh, was watching television, uh, including uh, Mexican and Brazilian telenovelas. Uh, and these were essentially um, about romantic love uh, and uh, love was a big drama uh, and young people really uh, w 
young girls and women especially, but young men as well, started watching certain telenovelas and they would run perhaps so uh, twice or three times or four times a week and um, everyone was watching and people young men told me they would um, they would uh, organize their entire schedule so as to not miss the time when the telenovela would would you know their favorite show would be on um, and, and of course inevitably you'd have um, power cuts And so that was absolutely dramatic because everyone would rush to the household uh, where they knew there was a, a, a generator and the TV would still be on. And I, a friend told me once that um, he was his brother had a generator and, and all, the, all the young men, everyone converged to his brother's house and this house that could, I mean, reasonably only hold about maybe 25 people all bunched up together on the floor and on the sofa um, was filled with about a hundred people and they were coming out of the windows and everybody was looking in and some of them were on the roof. I mean, it was just this, this madness. So all this to say that um, the telenovela, the, the, you know, romantic love became something really important. Uh, young men would tell me that they identified with certain Um, characters in in the shows, um, and and there was a a, a sort of a, a, a kind of something in the air about romance, about love, and marrying for love. Uh, and and young men started telling their parents that they uh, they would not want to have arranged marriages, um, and so. This, of course, didn't happen suddenly. This has been going on for a while. Um, but the, 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 the emergence of those, um, those shows really sort of um, created a context for, for young people to start asking themselves um, what it is they wanted in a marriage partner. Um, what, what's, what's interesting, and, and I'm trying to respond to your question here, is that um, courtship, therefore, is a, is a, a lengthy process uh, during which young men court young women in a, in a, in a way that they, uh, I mean, they're, 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 they're competing with one another and young women are expected to uh, listen coyly to their paramours, messages, their poems, their, 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 their love letters. Uh, now, of course, they don't, they don't write letters anymore. They just use uh, text messages and they can download entire poems from the internet to prove their love. They don't even have to, learn, to, to, to know how to speak love and to be poets um, as once was required of them. Uh, so courtship is a time of imagining, is a time of promise, is a time of, 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 Uh, a, a very fertile space for, um, for, 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 for imagining what a, a presumably prosperous middle-class marriage life would be like. And this is where the young man has to prove himself by 
showering the young woman with gifts. Um, mm -hmm. And if he can't do that, well, he doesn't stand a chance uh, to win his, uh, his girlfriend's heart because presumably others will, will do that before him by uh, buying her a refrigerator or a fan or giving her lots of cloth and paying her tailor's bill. Um, so, so there is, there is a, a kind of uh, friction between materiality and the supposed uh, disinterestness of romantic love. Um, of course, it's more complicated than that. Transactions have always been part of marriages, uh, are essential to the, the strength of marriages. And um, there are still arranged marriages today. There are still young girls who are forced to marry um, men whom sometimes they've never met before, maybe considerably older than they. Um, and uh, much of it has to do with the way in which... Um, Elder men uh, have access to wealth that they can use to contract those marriages. Um, women are still not protected uh, by legal structures. Uh, they're very vulnerable to divorce, to poverty. Um, and uh, so when we look at the legal structure, the, the spaces of imagining, Uh, new ways of, of, of creating uh, domesticity and, and partnerships um, and companionate marriages. Uh, we, we might say that things are changing considerably, but this is largely in urban areas mm -hmm. in the countryside. And we, we have to remind ourselves that uh, Niger is still a country, uh, it is a country where... Um, over half of the population is rural, right? It, it hasn't mm -hmm. yet shifted to, um, to, to urbanity in, in a way that other countries on the African continent have. Um, so there, traditional marriages are still very much part of the picture, um, but mm -hmm. we see that kind of urban-rural divide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks, Adeline. You know, this, um, in a way, the way that you were talking about the shift in perhaps even imagining the possibilities that romantic love provides, whether or not um, it's realized, the possibilities of the romantic love reminds me that, you know, through your book um, and particularly in chapters five and six, the last two chapters of the book, you um, sort of focus your writing on the cultivation of a certain kind of masculinity, which is bodily, And, you know, embedded in the body and conducted through the body through various uh, regimes of disciplining the body through various ways in which style and dress is iconed through the body. And if we put this all together, I was wondering if you could offer us a few comments about how do you situate your your book, uh, this particular book, but your larger interest that seems to be a part of this book um, in youth studies, in the broader framework of the study of generation in Africa. And I'll say a little more about it just to situate my question. 
which is to say that you know generation as an as an analytic has had a very long and exciting career in the studies of kinship particularly in africa and their iconic works about that uh in ways which we may not be able to imagine today however how would you situate something like the fada not merely in the broader context of youth studies which we may you know risk saying is a sort of a temporal temporal phase of a broader experience of generation so how can how do you do how do you situate this work and the larger interest in youth studies in a broader genealogy of the study of generation the the study of generation as an identity as an experience in the context of change in various aspects but also particularly in aspects of friendship and kinship uh, and gender relationships and identities of masculinity which you are um, you know centering in in the, in the fada um yeah so uh, of course as you said generation and youth have been studied um at 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 length by anthropologists and social theorists uh generation is a is a is a we might say a a typical anthropological topic um something that uh, uh generations of 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 field workers have um <laughs> explored and and written extensively about um uh, how parents raise their children uh the the whole question of rites of passage um romance courtship uh marriage the birth of children those are all um those are all quintessential anthropological topics um whether we look at it from a generational angle or whether we want to look at it from a a kinship or or even political angle uh you know across layers uh uh those are those are those are very important and traditional uh issues um which most uh students read about even in introduction to anthropology courses right um mm-hmm. so as you say there's <clears throat> there's nothing typically uh i mean it, there's nothing new about this this topic um but what and 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 i'm i'm tr- i tried in the book not to focus on there's there's been a lot of um you know in in the past decade um a uh, uh, wonderful studies in africa and elsewhere but in africa especially um framing the question of youth as uh, something that was in crisis the crisis of youth uh youth as gangs youth as violent intruders in the political space um youth as criminals uh or alternatively as vulnerable um uh, 
preyed upon by a, a patriarchy and a system, a political system that um, doesn't leave any space for youth, where elders hog resources uh, and power uh, and don't let um, young people voice their, their concerns or have any kind of seat at the table of power. Um, so in, in some sense, I was trying to not use crisis as the kind of register through which to, um, to write the book. I, I was interested in looking instead at creativity, what really um, was struck me when I, when I started looking at the Fada, um, which elders typically uh, would criticize as a space of laziness. Um, they would always talk about the young men who don't have jobs, who don't marry um, because they don't have bright wealth, because they can't afford to have a wife. Um, and it's all because of laziness. And the tea is just kind of a drug and it makes them complacent. And they, they just, they're, they're, they're el elders work to feed their children. It's a world t turned upside down. And so there, there was a lot of this kind of criticism. And of course, that's the backdrop against which I chose to sort of center my narrative of the Fada. And when I uh, started uh, really spending time at the Fada and, and considering, well, wh what really is happening there? I, I, I came across uh, so many instances of, of, of creativity, so many uh, ways in which uh, these young men would transcend, the, try to overturn the narrative of failure that was assigned to them. Um, and that they had plans, they had, uh, they, they tried to create, uh, they tried to produce, they tried to, uh, in, I mean, it's, it's of course an imaginative project, a way of projecting yourself into the future, imagining a better life for yourself. But, but that kind of striving, I argue, actually does give them a kind of momentum. Uh, and it also gives them a sense of self-assurance. So, in some ways, I was trying to uh, complicate a little bit some of that narrative of youth as just revolutionaries who don't want to have the life of their parents and who are simply uh, critiquing their parents as all youth do uh, because they're rebelling, because they want things to be different. Um, so while ostensibly there is, uh, yes, it's just another generation that's demanding their rights to exist, to, to have a place, um, and to have resources. Um, in, in other ways, I think something different is happening because, um, well, the Fada is a, is, a, is a place that certainly replaced, uh, I mean, it's a place, it's not just a place, right? It, it's, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a physical space, but it's also much more than that. Um, it's a it's a form of sociality. It's a way of living. It's a way of 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 uh, of, of of affirming one's 
existence in a kind of creative, politicized way. It's also a space of just conversation where, oh, I just want to be with my friends. And mm-hmm. this is what we are doing. We're just having fun. We're drinking tea and we don't want to think about our problems. Um, so it's all of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I was really interested in in both thinking of the Fada as a continuation of the, the, the structures that previously existed in Niger to... Um, to 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 capture and capitalize youthful energies for the benefit of the state. Uh, prior to the Fada, of course, there existed uh, youth structures that um, that that um, were headed by elders, and they. Um, they channeled the energy of youth towards uh, harvests, uh, certain building projects, as well as political shows when presidential uh, uh, figures, heads of states, uh, various kinds of you know figures of power came to town. The youth were corralled and made to um to dance to sing to to perform to do all kinds of things um when democracy um emerged in the 1990s um those kinds of structures that were really an instrument of the state um disintegrated and that's when the fada sort of emerged in 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 their place um so I was really interested in both the way in which the Fada could be seen as, well, a continuation of prior structures and yet something completely different, a new, a new uh, system that was created by youth for them. Um, and as you, as you mentioned, um, we have to think about the the fada as a in in the in the context of gender so the the i should have probably said that in the in, in response to your previous question but the fada being a male space is nevertheless a place where women um women they're they're part of the space too um mm-hmm. they're less visible uh they typically don't show up until late at night when, in fact, they can no longer be seen. Uh, They hide under the cover of darkness. Um, So the Fada is also the space where love can flourish, where conversations about love amongst young men, conversations about marriage happen. It is also where, where marriage uh, the, 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 the plans, right? The preparations for marriage mm-hmm. really take hold in the space of the Fada. Uh, much of the financing for certain events during the wedding are, 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 cannot happen without the Fada. I mean, you need your friends to finance part of the celebration. Um, mm-hmm. so much of the, 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 the question of, you know, am I ready to marry? Uh, how do I finance my wedding? 
um, who's behind me. All of that happens at the Fada. There's this, so the Fada is a very supportive space for young men to imagine themselves as courting young women. And the courting may actually happen at the Fada itself. But the Fada is also the space where you, you get the counseling, you get the support, emotional and financial, from your friends. Um, so it's an essential part of social reproduction, even if um, paradoxically it's, it is seen as a space that's devoid of women, um, where women don't really uh, have a place. And if they, young women who spent too much time at the Fada, who, 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 who talk to young men, who are seen as even sitting amongst them, are, are, you know, run the risk of, of, of earning a, a very bad reputation in the neighborhood. And so it, it, it is actually not a good thing for young mm-hmm. women to be seen at the Fada. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we, we, we want to see the Fada as a, as a space of friendship, as a space of masculinity where, where young men are in the absence of other means for them to forge uh, masculinity, manhood, um, maturity, social maturity, as, uh, you know, something that is possible with, uh, with jobs, with financial independence. Um, the FADA then uh, gives young men uh, a, a tools for, for, for them to, um, to forge a certain kind of um, masculinity uh, that they can be proud of. Um, and so the various projects they engage in, whether they be sartorial projects, you know, dressing up like a, like a, like a, like a rapper or like a, a musical star, or whether it be um, uh, being seen as, as, do-gooders who uh, engage in various kinds of projects for the neighborhood, cleaning up cemeteries and schools, building walls, um, investing themselves as as representatives of the neighborhood um, for the state, uh, NGOs, all of those various kinds of conversations that they engage in are meant to, on the one hand, um, uh, sort of enhance the image of the Fada for the neighborhood, um, but also forge uh, a, a, a modern masculinity uh, that's predicated on you know alternative ways of showing that one uh, can contribute to society in the absence of uh, secure jobs and um, stable livelihoods. Um, so in, in that sense, the Fada actually plays a very traditional role of, uh, promoting, uh, social reproduction. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks, Adeline. I mean, that was, um, that was a wonderful, um, sort of response to the anxieties about what has been called, you know, in various ways, the alleged inversion of the intergenerational contract in so many 
situations of precarity and uh, you know marginalization of the youth that we are witnessing all over. So that's a, that's a great way of to think about it in terms of the ways creative and purposeful ways in which alternative relationships of friendship and kinship may be formed at these at these sites. Um, uh, my my sort of last question for our conversation today is about the visual language of the book. You know, the fact that the book is so beautifully written and there is a very striking visual language. I, I'm always reminded of uh, this phrase that you use that is the sitting that kills the pants and many other such sort of evocative ways of reminding us that the space of the father and the sensibilities that it it conveys to the readers is is part of being at the father. So I wanted to ask you, and you know, in a way of telling our listeners, how many of these writing choices that you had to make, um, you know, how did they come about? Was it the fact that the sensorium of the father, the effect that it had in you, and the effect that it translates um, onto the readers? What kind of writing choices did you have to make? Uh, if you can point us to any particular instance that you remember of. Or was it in some measure the fact that the ethnographic social world that uh, you inhabited and that you're writing about also in some ways rendered itself to the kind of writing that we see in the book? So I'm sure our listeners would you know, love to know about the kinds of choices that went into the writing of a text on boredom and belonging. Yes, oh, that's a lovely... Um expression, visual language. I like that. Um, so I was mainly working with and speaking with Hausa speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, in Niamey, uh, people speak other languages, um, which I don't speak. So I, I had to rely on either French now, of course, many educated young men speak French. Um, some don't or speak French poorly due to the fact that schools have become impoverished. Um, education has suffered dramatically from those drastic economic reforms and uh, the, the, the cuts that have been um, made to the educational system, which I was referring to earlier. Um, in any event, uh, so I, I, I spoke primarily in French and in Hausa. Hausa is a lingua franca in Niger. So there are non-native Hausa speakers. Um, they speak Hausa usually better than me, <laughs> um, it, it's very convenient. Hausa is wonderful um, as a language. It is, we might say it is a visual language. Lots of metaphors, lots of proverbs. People knew um, I like proverbs. I'm always uh, writing down the proverbs. I don't necessarily write down everything else and I don't necessarily tape conversations uh, either because I feel that it 
stifles conversation and I want people to feel free. Um, certain expressions, certain visual forms of language I will write up um, and then I'll ask everyone else, well, what do you, what does that mean? Do you use that expression and so on and so forth? So the sitting that kills the pent mm-hmm. is an expression which I referred to at the onset of the book. Uh, it seemed uh, while I was writing the introduction that it would be a good way to start. Um, I also presented um, part of that material earlier on and I had gotten totally used to the expression. For me, it, it became normal when I heard it. I, it, it didn't make me jump with joy um, as when I hear something new that's incredibly evocative, right? And you know you've just latched onto, you've just come across something really rich and, 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 and that needs to be unpacked uh, and that, that, that captures uh, a whole micro world. But hearing my audiences, every time I spoke of the sitting that kills a pen, I realized, oh, that that really, that expression packs a punch. It, it, it's, a, it's a really powerful way of speaking of a certain kind of disempowerment. So I decided this, this would be a good, a good place to start, a good, um, a, a good place to, um, yeah, a, a good expression to um, to start the conversation um, with at the at the in the introduction um, and I've always been interested in dress and clothes and in fact I think every one of my book has a dress <laughs> chapter uh, or if it doesn't the first book doesn't because I took it out but but, um, or maybe I, I forget now. Anyway, the, in my dissertation, I, ho- I had a dress chapter. Um, it was about dressing the spirits during, you know, spirit possession performances. Um, so the sitting that kills the pet, which is literally the fact that when you sit, because you have nothing to do, um, you, you, you use up the, 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 the bottom of your pants where you, right where you sit, uh, becomes used up, becomes frayed, so that when you stand up, people see their holes in your pants, right where you used to sit. Um, to me, it, 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 it spoke so powerfully of disempowerment. Um, people who engage in... Um, in uh, in, in hard labor, um, have work clothes. They don't wear their nice clothes to go um, harvest their millet or to um, milk their cows. And for, for young men to tell me that it wasn't their, their work activities that got their clothes frayed and, 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 and used and worn, but it was the absence of activity, I thought was a really um, important way that, that really signified uh, 
what social immobility was. It was both a physical immobility and it was a, a, a more existential kind of immobility. Um, and for men who typically walk about, um, are very visible in the public sphere, whether they are farmers, whether they're pastoralists, whether they're teachers uh, or doctors, nurses. Um, for, for young men to tell me, you know, I'm, my, my clothes are used up because I sit around because I have nothing to do because I don't have a job because I'm poor, um, seemed, you know, incredibly important. So that's, that's, uh, that's what, what made me um, want to, you know, front load that image that people would mm -hmm. have that in their mind as they read mm -hmm. the book. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, it was something, uh, something that I've always been interested in language, um, the way people phrase certain modes of being experiences. Um, there's another one uh, at the, in, in, in chapter seven, Uh, which I also use, it's a proverb um, and it's about the fact that when you're, when you're uh, running after a, mm -hmm. um, in Nigeria, you have those little mini, mini, they're not tornadoes. Um, people identify them as tornadoes, but they're not tornadoes. They're just little twirling masses of air that move about. They don't destroy anything. They're not. They're not destructive, um, but but they're they, they they move about and just like a tornado, you don't know if a tornado is going to turn right or left. It moves about across the landscape. So the proverb I I use that sort of to to to, to provide a mood for chapter seven, which is about political engagement. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that young men uh, may belong to one party and then shift over to another party because it's convenient, because there are opportunities, and then they'll shift again to the, the previous party they were a member of because another opportunity has arisen. Um, I felt that this particular um, mode of, of, of zigzagging, which I call political zigzagging, was aptly captured by that proverb of, you know, there's no rest for the, the man who, who pursues the whirlwind. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a typical Hausa proverb. Um, mm -hmm. And I was, I, I was really struggling when I wrote the book. How, how can I talk about the fact that young men uh, ostensibly just sit, sit around and do nothing? They drink tea all day. And yet, in fact... They're, they're, they're engaged in multiple ways, multiple modes of earning an income. Um, they have all these different possibilities. They, they start all these different projects knowing that half of them are not going to pan out. Half of them are, are just going to fizzle. Um, and, and so there has to be in play of a host of possible means of earning income, however minimal it might be, just so that, you know, you can, you can survive. And, and, and so this, this kind of 
constant instability. You're sitting, but you're always ready for the next opportunity. Constant on, on this mode of alertness, watchful for what comes um, across the landscape that you can, you know, that opportunity you can grab. And mm -hmm. so I structured the entire book, starting with immobility as a mode of being, as an existential problem, and then ending with that kind of restlessness of the man who pursues the whirlwind and, and who has no rest. Based on conversations, testimonies I had with young men who, who told me how exhausting things were. And I was exhausted for them and I was exhausted with them because, you know, I, it, it, it's, it's that moment when you're during field work, you're, you're, you're going with one of your friends, right? And he's supposed to sit with you at some point and you're supposed to talk about stuff and you, you have this whole set of questions for him. And then he goes, oh, well, okay, since we are in a car, why don't we go here? I have to pick up this. And, oh, I need to, I need to go to this guy's house. He promised me he may have a job for me for a couple of weeks. Um, oh, and I need to talk to my aunt because um, she's going to give me some chickens. I'm going to start a chicken farm. And, you know, and then the whole morning is gone. And all you've done is run around with him sort of enabling him to, to, to meet all his contacts and start all these different little mini projects. And you're, you're thinking, my God, you know, I'm not doing field work. I'm just following this guy running <laughs> around. But at some point you realize, no, 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 this is the field work. I don't need to ask questions. He's taught me that this is his life. He's not sitting around. Well, sometimes he is, but sometimes he's running around. And so once I, figured that out once I had that epiphany it really um it was a matter of thinking about how do I structure this book starting with you know the tea drinking the boredom the the guys who are just sitting by the side of the street being insulted by elders who don't greet them because they see them as being parasites and then at the end of the book you know, that, that sort of restlessness, this, this constant anxiety, you know, young men who say, oh, I don't even have time to sleep anymore because I'm, I'm always doing stuff. Um, and so the, the chapters, I was trying to sort of structure them around that kind of tension, right? Um, which I think is, is not specific to Niger. I mean, the, the whole way in which um, uh, the, 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 the emerging generation, the millennials, are also, many of them have very precarious employment and are, are having to, um, whether it's in the U.S., in, in Niger, in, 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 in France, in Mexico, in Japan, they don't have stable employment. So they're constantly having to look for jobs, even as they're doing the jobs. And so the, the distinction between work and leisure completely fizzles. It, the whole, their whole existence becomes this sort of diffuse form of work that 
and, and and that brings about terrifying anxiety. There's no rest. You're constantly having to scheme and project yourself in the future, looking for new uh, forms of employment, looking to somehow um, create a more secure foothold in the um, in the job market. Um, so, in some ways, I think um, the kind of uh, situation I described uh, as specific to Nigerian youth um, really speak to a, a wider problematic um, that we see unfolding um, across uh, across the world, uh, both in the global south and in the global north, um, and uh, but. What's of course wonderful about about Niger is that the the language with which people speak, uh, both of love, of of pleasure, of happiness, of, of even the simple pleasures of drinking tea, um, it, you know, tea becomes a. They, they told me that you know tea is a drug. Tea is a is is a virus that you catch on and then you're contaminated. Um, all of these these forms of, 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 of being, whether it's the, the 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 simple pleasures of life, whether it's the existential angst of the perpetually uh, precariously employed youth, whether it's the the the, the imaginings of prosperity uh, and 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 social success and 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 mature adulthood that they hope will eventually, uh, you know, be part of their experience. All of, all of those modes of being, um, they, they often described in, in highly evocative language. And uh, so despite the fact that I will never speak Hausa uh, as, a, as a native, um, I still managed to catch on all these wonderful um forms of visual language. Um, and of course, one part of that visual language, which I can perhaps speak of briefly, if there's still time, are the names they give to their fadas. Um, when, you, when you drive across or walk across um, urban centers, um, you, um, you cannot but be astonished by the visual culture. Um, young men have literally taken over the walls uh, of, um, of the towns. And I don't mean, of course, uh, public walls such as, uh, you know, the presidential palace or the courts or administrative offices or, or uh, fancy grocery stores, but in the more modest neighborhoods, um, they have taken over the walls, mud walls or uh, concrete walls. Um, usually they're the, the, the public face of the walls that surround uh, courtyards and, and homes. And this is where they plaster their, their, their visual imaginings of the fada, right? So they give names to their fadas, they... They write the name of the fada in big, bold uh, letters, and they imagine a whole set of visual icons um, that is, is incredibly um, 
it tells you so much about what they're dreaming about. Uh, they dream of of becoming famous rap stars. They dream of becoming strong and bulky and 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 you know elegantly dressed or uh, modern, fancy English speakers. Um, so there's there's a lot wrapped up in those those you know iconic. Um, visual representations of the fada but but i i devote a whole chapter to that because i i felt it was essential to understanding the fada as a not just as a place as a place where where you drink tea not just as a place where you plan your wedding or you uh you court your your girlfriend not just as a place where you show up dressed up uh you know as a as a musical star but also as a as an aesthetic space um, that, as far as young men are concerned, beautifies the neighborhood. They're very clear that they're not, even though some of those uh, those um, images, those murals, um, look like tagging and graffiti, and in some ways they share a lot of the characteristics of graffiti. Young men insist, no, no, no. We are beautifying the neighborhood. Um, this is this is our contribution to uh, to to urban space, to urban culture. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I um, and that is, uh, I will say it again that the visual language of the book does is so compellingly able to convey all of that stuff that you just spoke about. Uh, and I know we have taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go. I would love for our listeners to know what is the next thing you're working on and what is it that we can expect to see from you next. So um, I've, for my next book, I've returned to my earlier um, doctoral research, um, picked up on my interest in spirit possession. Um, at some point, I became aware that um, schoolgirls were um, being possessed by spirits in schools, and it wasn't just an individual thing. Sometimes it was, but more often than not, um, the kind of possession that one girl would suddenly exhibit was contagious. Uh, in a matter of moment, have the classroom was possessed. Um, and this happened not just in Dogonduchi, it happened everywhere, in Niamey, uh, in, in other cities across the, 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 the country. Um, so it wasn't specific to a region or an ethnicity. Um, it happened even in Islamic schools, um, or at least it did so in, in Dogonduchi. Um, the, the, the town where I've been, you know, spending much of my time uh, in the past 30 years um, while doing research. And uh, what's fascinating about those incidents, um, which of course uh, tend to wreak havoc, right? Schools have to be closed. Um, parents tend to be very wary about sending their daughters back to school. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at it 
as, on the one hand, a commentary on um, the state of affairs, a state of affairs having to do with um, the controversy surrounding teenage girls' education in a country um, that uh, has... Um, where, where certain Mus conservative Muslim, in certain conservative Muslim quarters, there's a resistance to, um, to girls' education. Um, it's fine for primary school, but as soon as puberty hits, uh, many um, religious leaders uh, insist that school is not the proper place for girls. They should be married. Um, their, their, their purity should be preserved. Uh, schools are, uh, described as dens of vice, um, and schoolgirls sometimes earn a bad reputation. So there are questions of, 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 of modesty, purity, um, respectability attached to, um, to young girls of marriageable age, which, the, the, the school environment tends to sully, tends to, 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 um, to destroy. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and the, the government's trying to pass laws to, to protect uh, the right of girls to attend school until 18, but this is a very uh, controversial issue. So girls are caught up in that particular kind of public discourse. Um, and on the other hand, um, there's a whole um, uh, other dimension to the possession experience having to do with the fact that the, the girls who are possessed when speaking with the voice of the spirit um, speak of the fact that um, schools were built uh, on spaces previously occupied by spirits. So trees were cut, uh, schools were built. What, what we can see is that urbanization, uh, growing demography, the, 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 the expansion of education in Niger post-independence, all of those different modes of what we might call development, um, had an impact on um, the ecology of spaces. Of course, farmers complain there's no more land, that the, 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 there's, there's drought. You know? So we can talk about um, ecology, we can talk about environment, we can talk about um, Islamic iconoclasm, a lot of um, spirit-based practices um, that were essential to the viability of communities, the health of families, and 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 land, uh, fields, um, animals. Um, much of that has been set aside as people massively converted to Islam uh, in the post-independence era. Niger earns, earned its independence in 1960. So um, it's a very complicated narrative that involves um, questions of, of memory, questions of a past 
that resurfaces uh, in the guise of angry spirits demanding um, their dues, demanding uh, that the grievances they have be heard. Um, the trees that they used to inhabit were cut to make space for schools. So th that intersects with the, the, the whole discourse about girls' right to education. So there's a very rich narrative around those spirit possession events. We can look, of course, at each and every girl's own uh, individual experience and their struggles with adolescence, with love, with boyfriends, their anxieties about marriage. But there's also a larger narrative that they become part of by being possessed since all of them, well, perhaps not all, but many of them, typically um, once possessed, uh, unleash this, this narrative of ecological destruction of Islamic iconoclasm of a past that refuses to be forgotten. Um, and so I, I find it totally fascinating that young girls who are not even born um, when, when, their, when their parents or grandparents um, became committed Muslims are now speaking of this, uh, this unsettled past uh, in a way that's really harmful to them because um, often enough, um, they miss school, they become sick. Uh, in some cases, they don't return to school after being possessed. Um, and, and of course, the, the, the school administration, they, have, they don't really want to deal with the religious aspect of those, those incidents. They talk about um, biomedical conditions, epilepsy or, or some kind of, uh, you know, female... Uh, problem, right? Um, and they they tell they they recommend that parents send their children to the hospital. Um, that doesn't really help in most cases. Um, so I'm I'm really interested in in um, in untangling the, all these different um, complex narratives that that seem to um, to, to to emerge. Um, in the classroom, in the school courtyard. Um, and as I said, it's not just one place, it's happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Adeline. That sounds like a very, very interesting project and all the best for uh, pursuing that as you proceed. I really want to express uh, my gratitude to you for being on the show today. This was a really, really uh, enjoyable and useful conversation. I really enjoyed myself and I hope you so did you. Uh, so thank I, you so I did. much. I did. Thank you. Thank you, Bumika. I, I enjoyed talking about my work and I certainly um, enjoyed um, talking with you and I hope we, we meet at some point. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Adeline. You take care. Thank you.